We're going to continue this series. It is called How, the, How We Worship, and we've been thinking about considering Psalm 96. I said to a few of you last week, like, when we were talking about where we got into the series anyway, it was really for this week. Sometimes you have a conviction you want to, someone asked me this week, they said, well, how do you even know what you're going to preach on when you preach? Because they've been praying about what they maybe would call to preach on. You just discern what you think God's calling you to preach. You pay attention to what people are talking about, what you're hearing, what you've been praying about. And then you, with a whole bunch of grace and uh, discernment, try to find a way through that. And this verse of scripture is really what stood out to me about when we think about Jesus and, and, and our call to be his people. Psalm 96, as, as small and as quick as it seems, uh, is intimately um, rooted in who we are as believers in God, right, and what God does. We've talked so much of this already in the series about um, what it means to sing to the Lord. We talked last week what it means to ascribe his qualities to him, that we would n- not forget ourselves, and that he would be glorified for who he is, right? So these are normal experiences of a believer in Jesus Christ that you would not forget. One of the most consistent what would you say, uh, character traits of people in the Bible is we forget who God is. And it happens in the middle of life when things are, are going great. It happens in the middle of life when things are, are going crazy. No matter, it happens, I think, in the ordinary life when it's not great or crazy, just normal. We have a tendency to kind of forget who God is, and, then, and it changes maybe the way we live in a negative way. And so today we're going to talk about uh, what it means to worship. And today's title is not a scribe, it's actually worship. It should be on your actually engagement sheets. If you got one, I hope you got one when you came in, right? So if you got one, you're going to have everything that I would have had up here in your hand, which is kind of cool. And so, um, so today we're going to talk about what it means to worship a God. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to read it up to where we're at in the psalm, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to talk through this morning um, what the Lord has for us in Psalm 96. So if you don't... Uh, have, if, you, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Psalm 96, and if you don't have uh, a, a Bible with you, you can pick up one in the end of the chair. Well, I think it's like 415 or 425, something like that is the page number. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses of the psalm. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, and strength and glory are his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. And then today's verse. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the people with equity. That's the word today. Let's pray together. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the chance we've had to sing songs of your glory and your goodness, your greatness amongst us. Father, we've confessed that we are a forgetful people, that we so often... um, don't remember our great grace we've been given in, in you, in yourself, in who you are. And that, Father, we, we are here amongst your creation to glorify you. I pray this morning as we come into this place that we would be thinking about you, that we would maybe reorient our lives a little bit towards you and who you are. And, Father, I pray that this morning we might draw near to you. And, and, and Lord, this takes you reaching us because without you, we, we have no hope. 
We have no knowledge of our own, no way to get to you. There's no way we can build a bridge from our side. But Father, we know that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we've already heard confessed today, you've made a way, you, your son laid down his life that we could know you fully. And so Father, I pray that today that that bridge would be strengthened and built uh, from you to us in the name of our Savior and your son, Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, sent from your right hand would come now and teach us, change us, because of who you are, and that we would be more fully human and more fully made in your image today. May you be glorified. We thank you so much. We, we love you, and uh, we praise you because of all you've done for this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going we're gonna to just pick up where we left off last week, which is with this uh, change. Now, I've been saying every week so far, if you've been here, uh, these are commands, imperative commands given to the church. So the church is commanded to sing. I was thinking about this morning, we were singing together, and it's like, why do churches sing? I remember I heard one time uh, a, a non-believer um, come into uh, a, a worship service, and hey, they go, what's the deal with the karaoke? What do you mean karaoke? Well, you put words on the screen in the front, and everyone sings it together. It's kind of, it's a strange, right? It's because we're commanded to sing. We're commanded to sing, and we're actually in many ways formed and taught to sing in the community in which we live and believe. And, but here, the psalm clearly calls us to sing by command to the Lord. It's a strange thing to be commanded to sing. And then last week, we talked about how we're called to ascribe. We're, we're, we're told, imperative, you must ascribe to the Lord his glory and his strength. And in the same exact way, and I'm just pointing this out because I would, I would be remiss if I didn't, worship is a command. It's an imperative command in the life of a Christian. It's not like, well, I can worship if, if I feel like it, if I want to, but we're commanded to worship. And in verse 9, it says this, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And that's one of the fundamental, if not the fundamental command that we've been given as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of Yahweh that we would be commanded to worship him. You remember that Israel has a, a, a spotty past with forgetting God. As I said, we're forgetful people. But here, the psalmist commands that we would worship the Lord. What does it mean to worship God? What does it look like? That's what we've been talking about the whole time. It looks like singing and ascribing, right? And it's going to look like rejoicing in the next week, spoiler alert. But what does it look like to worship the Lord? We've been talking about the entire time. But today... In that first box in the back of your engagement sheets, what we're going to write there is bow, that we're called to bow to the Lord. All the singing and all the rejoicing and all the declaration of who God is, ultimately our call is to be bowing to the Lord. That's what it means to worship him. I'm reminded as we, as we come into the Christmas season, which is amazing that that is coming, right, that the normal experience of seeing God is to bow to him, to worship him to get on our faces. That's literally what it means. Um, to bow down, to be made low. I love this, by the way. I love it as an, as in an I hate it, as a guy. To submit. <laughs> to bow means to be submitted onto someone else, to be laying yourself down, to making yourself less because of the reverence for who you're before. The word here in, in Psalm uh, uh, 96.9 is to, to bow down in such a way as to recognize God's greatness. That's what I would think. To recognize who he is in our lives. To worship him. 
You wonder maybe why these things are so connected, the idea of worshiping and the idea of, and why we'd be commanded to do it, right? But I, I've said to you already, we have a tendency to forget that God is God and we are not. Like that's one of the fundamental truths of our life, that we are not God. And I only have to tell you that because I have to tell myself that because I constantly think that I am. My tendency is to think that I can handle this, that I got this. Have you ever thought that way about your life? I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do the right things. And the truth is that the way that we honor God most is by submitting fully unto him, to saying, I don't have this. I need you. We're going to actually talk today about some examples from Scripture about how imperative this command to worship God, to submit to him, is. It's not just found in Psalm 96. It's not the only place that we read it in the Bible. It's to say that every one of us, no matter all of our gifts or all of our abilities, have a, a command to bow to God himself, to be submitted to him. This is, a, I said, a, a great thing, but a difficult thing, because um, who wants to bend the knee to anybody? Who wants to do that? Who wants to get on their face in desperation before anybody and say, without you, I cannot succeed? Nobody I know. We'd much rather say, uh, I, I got it, I got it, I can handle it. I don't need your help. But that is not the witness of Scripture. The Scriptures say repeatedly that we absolutely, listen to me, can do nothing of value apart from God. Nothing. We can do nothing in our lives apart from his presence, his glory. We have no hope apart from God. And so the psalmist commands us then to bow to the Lord. It's the same thing with the ascribing and the singing to the Lord. We bow to one person, God himself. This um, is uh, a blessing in a way, too, because you have a very simple command. I said to you, when things are going super good, we have a tendency to forget God. You know what you do in those moments? You bow to God. You remember him. Or when things are really hard, you bow to God. Or when things are right in the middle, <laughs> not great, not terrible, what do we do? We submit to the Lord. We bow to God. This is the imperative command that we find in the psalm. Well, well, this next part is really what stands out to me in the psalm is how do we do it then, right? And we do it, and this next little box I think is at the top here, yeah, in, in holiness. We do it in holiness is what the psalmist writes. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, I don't know what your translation says there. Mine says his holiness. We're gonna come to that in a minute. But the text reads, worship, bow, Submit to the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And this holiness is, is a, a beauty, a perfection that is different, is other, right? And so the idea of holiness means to be set apart or sacred, to, to the sacredness. We're called to worship God in sacredness. We're, we're called to worship God in otherness. And, and I think about that, and I think, well, what does that mean for us practically? Like, how do I worship God in a way that's me but not me? I, how can I bring things to, to bear on the creator of the universe when he's so different than I am? I said it's one of the fundamental truths of life is that God is God and we are not, right? So what do we bring to him that's glorifying to him, that recognizes his otherness and his holiness, his sacredness, it would be the culmination of this call to sing and to ascribe. What does that, that look like? Um, what, are the, what are the fundamental realities that's reiterated over and over again in the Bible is that, that God is different. 
like us but different. And, and we are called to worship him in his difference, in, dif- in his holiness. I don't know if you feel that at all in the text, but it feels an impossible thing. So, so how do I do that practically? How do I worship God in holiness practically? How, how do I come before his throne in a way that doesn't dishonor him practically? Matter of fact, if you look at what this says, it says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. That word splendor means the beauty. It means the beautiful thing that we could rightly worship God is a beautiful thing to God. It's a beautiful adornment, the word means. It's, it's, I love this, um, by the way. It's an array. <laughs> An array. I don't know if um, you have a context for an array, but two things come to mind for me. One thing is the spectrum. If you have a little prism and the light hits it a certain way and it just spreads this beautiful, have you ever seen that? It's like a little science experiment thing. It's like a little triangle and the light hits a certain way and it just spreads this beautiful color. It separates the white light into all the colors. And you might say, yeah, Roy G. Biv, right? No, not quite. It's more than that, isn't it? It's the infinite colors between that are captured in the purity of the white light, that there's this array that can just be splayed on the wall or splayed on the ceiling or wherever, you're, wherever you see it, reflected the glory that's captured that we can miss all the time. Right now, it's out there. Look at it. It's the glory of God. An array. An array is a great assortment. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a complex uh, beauty. And, and that's what the psalmist writes, is God's holiness. It's this beautiful, glorious um, attribute, hmm? recognition of who God is. So we're called to worship God in holiness, in an array, in, a, in such a way that it adorns him for who he is, that it, it recognizes him. This might have something to do with why we're called to ascribe all the traits of God to him, because it begins to help us to reflect more intimately on all the different ways that he is glorious, beautiful, wonderful, worthy. So we are, have this now command to worship God in holiness. Now, this is one of those things that I... I um, it's been such a blessing because I, I don't know if you've ever gone, but we have a ministry here um, at the uh, Highland Home in Highland, Illinois. And uh, it's in a, apartments for seniors. How many of you have been there before? Senior apartment, good. Mo- a lot of you, that's awesome, yeah. And so, um, matter of fact, I think on our sheet this week, we said something like, uh, visit local seniors for the holidays. I, th- I thought maybe it'd be a cool thing to go out and sh- share some love with the people who live there. I don't know how, how that's going to what that's going to look like. But if you want to do it, check the box, and we'll talk about and do something. Um, maybe for Thanksgiving, maybe for Christmas. We'll go out and just do some visiting. Uh, we usually go out and sing Christmas carols on Christmas Day in the nursing homes in the community um, as a way to, to um, bless them and in, be encouraged ourselves that we have this, um, this gift of holiness. Well, I was there one time. I used to go every, every week to the Highland Home for the services there. And there was this old-time preacher and I love preachers. And this is an old-time preacher. And he had a little old country church. And he'd come in there, and he said these words. I was, a, I was a young believer, new believer, didn't fully understand what I had, God had gotten me into <laughs> with Jesus Christ, but I was all in on it. And I was sitting there, and he was preaching, I believe this. He could have been preaching this. He could have been preaching, what do we say, um, uh, Chronicles, right, where this is captured as well. Um, but he's preaching one of these texts, and he said, worship the Lord in holy attire. Does anybody have a translation that says attire? Yeah, a few of us do. That's right. Worship the Lord in holy attire. And I was sitting there like you are today, and I was just hanging out with my friends, listening to the gospel. And 
He says, this means, friends, you got to wear your best clothes to church. Then I realized he was in a suit, and I wasn't. And he looked dapper, and I didn't. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> you ever become self-aware like that in a situation where you think everything's good, and then you realize, oh, I'm doing something wrong? Well, he said it with full conviction as a man who's been preaching the word a very long time. And I'm like, oh, no, here I am worshiping God in unholy attire. <laughs> like I wanted to like slink out the back, you know, go home and change and come back or something, you know, I don't know. I thought, oh, man, if I, if I come to that guy's church, I, I better have my suit on. I better have my Sunday best. I better be dressed to the nines because he made the case because God's glory is worthy of our effort. And I'm like, yeah. I started getting convicted. But it kind of messed me up a little bit. And I thought, I thought, what, what does this mean? Worship God in his holy attire. That's because this adornment, this glory, this splendor, is a bit, it's a dressing of some sort. And it messed me up. And I, I don't know if you ever had things mess you up when you run into them in Scripture and someone's preaching. But I, my advice to you is if it messes you up, let it mess you up. Because I went home all messed up. And I started reading it. And I'm like, where did he even preach that from? And I was looking at it. I think it's Psalm 96. That's, that's worship God in holy attire. What does that mean? And then I found that word, his holiness. Now, I'm going to say to you, as a faithful um, steward of the word of God, his is not there in the text. It says, worship God in holiness. That's what it says. It says, worship him in holiness. But there's something in the adornment that requires something else. And it's like, what does that look like? And then the his started to make sense. Okay, well, what does it look like to worship God in his holiness? So I would encourage you, if you wrote holiness in that top box, worship God in holiness, that right above holiness, you put his holiness. But we're going to talk about why we would do that. Why we do that? Because the question becomes, as believers in Jesus, how can we honor God most fully in the way we dress for worship? How can we honor the God the most, most completely in the way we show up in worship? And then the gospel comes into play. That God so loved the world that gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life, right? That we have been given the opportunity to know Jesus and therefore in Jesus, please, God the Father. I want to make a case for you this morning, that, 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 and this is it, that to worship God rightly, we have to recognize all the time that we are in Christ, that we are covered in his anointing, in his being, in his perfection. You know, I, I asked a question earlier. I said, what would be glorifying enough to please God for his glory? Like, what would be enough to make, to make, recognize his holiness? And what we believe about Jesus Christ is it is only in Christ himself, Jesus, fully man, fully God, on the cross, died and raised from the dead, that, that's the only way you and I can adequately express to God his own glory. It's through what Jesus did on the cross. Listen to me, through what Jesus did for you. All of a sudden, I went from feeling like, where are my nice clothes at, to I'm wearing Christ. 
that somehow, and I'm going to say there's mystery in this, that when God looks at me, sinner though I am, broken though I am, lost though I am, he sees his son who has given himself for me. He sees his son's obedience, not my disobedience. He sees his son's sinlessness, not my sinfulness. He sees the full redemption of all the people who are standing under the garment of Christ. That's us. So when we worship, what do we do? We worship through Jesus to the Father. He's our anointing and our covering. He's our, our King and our Savior and our Lord. And we worship God in his literally own holiness, his own righteousness, his own sacrifice. We worship God in that way. Um, I'm going to read uh, two passages that came to mind uh, from the New Testament. And the first is Romans 13, uh, 14. I'm going to read a little around it, but 13, 14. This is what the word says. This is Paul writing to church in Rome. He says this, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So he's like, okay, dress in some righteousness. Well, what does that look like? Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. And you're like, oh, that's some gross stuff. And he listed it all right there in the Bible. He wrote it all down for you. Don't do those things. Rather, verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how you can desire your own sinful nature. Put on Jesus. Paul writes to the church in Rome, you want to know how to be righteous? Put on Jesus. You want to know how to fulfill the law? Put on Jesus. He says, instead, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't think about how you can gratify or how I can gratify my sinful nature, my sinful desires, the flesh, the sarks. And then we have another one here, and this is from uh, Galatians 3.27. I'm going to read around a little bit as well. Paul writing to the church in Galatia says this, <clears throat> before, the fa- before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. We were locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because you were all baptized into Christ, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. He's saying that in Jesus Christ, the law is fulfilled in us. And to make a point of this putting on um, uh, Christ, the, he says it comes in baptism. We can talk about that. We can talk about that, right? But belief in Christ is to be baptized in his name. That is true. Baptized in the Holy Spirit. You don't know Christ apart. You don't know Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. But what does it mean? That you have, when you're baptism, you were clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he makes the point to say this. And therefore, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You look the same to God. You've pleased him in your faith in his son, this is one of those points of the Christian walk that is so um, uh, simple and yet needed to be said again and again and again, that it is in Christ we're made righteous, 
It is in his blood that we're made whole. It is in his covering that we're right. And that any other thing that we believe is true about our righteousness is a lie, is wrong. The way that we can most please God to worship him in the holy array, the splendor of his glory, is to be clothed in his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, to wear Jesus in our worship. That's what the word says. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness or in the splendor of holiness. But it's his holiness. He's got the only holiness there is. I wanted to, so then we're talking, so we're going to pull back a little bit because we're talking, okay, so what does it mean? We, we said worship uh, through uh, singing and worship through ascribing, right? And, and, and now just worship through bowing and submitting and recognizing who he is and, and being covered in Christ. But I want to tell you how practical this was for People following God. I would just say it that simply. Yahweh. People following him. How practical it was that you would need him in battle. I said to you that we have a tendency to not want to need God. Like, I got this. I got this, right? But that is a fundamental sin that uh, we have as people, that we, we can go our own way apart from God. And so I want to read this story to you. <clears throat> it's a little longer, but it's, it's, it shows the power, the demonstration of God's necessity for his people and this is going to come in 2 Chronicles 20, 15 through 22. 2 Chronicles 20, 15 through 22. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Ju Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord, that's Yahweh, says, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. So this is the first deal, is that the people of God are being led into battle to fight, and the king himself is told that this battle is not about you, so don't be afraid, right? The battle belongs to God. Verse 16, tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up past the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jerel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see, that the, deliverance, and see the deliverance the Lord will give to you. So be ready for battle, but you're not going to have to fight. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. That's the third time he says, don't be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out tomorrow and face them, and the Lord will be with you. That's the, that's the command, the instructions of the military. Go out, get ready, but then watch God deliver you. Watch God be your, 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 your fighter. 18, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground. The king bowed with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before Yahweh. Then some Levites from the Kathites and the Korhites stood up and they praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with loud voices. So you've got the king bowed down, you've got the people bowed down, you've got the priest standing up singing God's praises. This is the imagery we get. That's the night of. Here's the next morning. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Teoka. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. They have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to what? Sing to the Lord, Yahweh. And to what? Praise him, what? For the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army. 
So the king wakes up in the morning. He says, you know what we're going to do? As you go forward this morning into this battle, you're going to sing praises to the Lord. You're, you're going to sing to the Lord, and you're going to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. That's the exact same word the psalmist says. You're going to array him in his, in his holiness, his worthiness. And here's the words you're going to use. Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As you go into battle, give thanks to God because his love endures forever. It never quits. Verse 22. And as they began to sing, listen, church, and as they began to praise, the Lord, Yahweh, set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and, and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. I just think that's pretty amazing. I mean, there is plenty of stuff in the Old Testament about how great fighting warriors and great kings and great rulers, but there's no greater, and if you listen to the stories, there's no greater victor than God himself winning the battle. There's no greater resource. And for these men who were most able to fight, most able to endure, probably the people who have least likely been to need anybody but their king, would sing and praise God and be able to watch their own deliverance at God's very hand and therefore being the enemy being defeated. This is the point. Wor and I'm convinced of this. Worship is spiritual warfare. Why do I say it's important that you would clothe yourself in Christ? Because it's spiritual warfare. The world's coming at us all the time, and there is an enemy. That's one of the things I think that we're deceived about. We don't think we're in a fight. We think, no, this is just life. It's fine. It's, I got it. I got it. We don't got it. There's this huge battle going on, and God has commanded his people to sing his praises, to glorify him, that he would fight for us, that he would be the, ultimately be our victor in the war, that he would save his people. You see, worship is spiritual warfare. It is spiritual warfare. If we are not going to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ, and if we're, we're going to put on anything else and say, this makes me right with God, it's going to be filthy rags before him. Our efforts, our works, our goodness, our own thoughts, our own ideas. No. Christ himself, this is why he came. Because we were lost in our sin. We were abandoned like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus came to make it right. Worship God in the splendor of his holiness. I hope you hear that today. You, you just, I hope you can hear it, that that's what's most pleasing to God is when we recognize our place in Christ. I would encourage you, Christian, don't fall for the trap that you're good enough. Don't, don't take that bait. People goad us into it. Just proclaim it again. No, I'm not good enough. I'm saved. What do you mean? Jesus is good enough. I'm not good enough. I hope you have those conversations, if not with other people, at least with yourselves when you're doubting, when you're struggling in your own life. God is the victor. He will bring the victory. So as we go, we sing and we praise him because he is our victor. He is our king. That's what the psalmist wants from us, ascribe to the Lord. And you know what's funny is this is what David's doing as he's dancing before the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, coming into Jerusalem. God's coming home, and David is singing and dancing and jumping around. That's where we're going to go now, down to the bottom here. So what does it look like? Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Here's the command. Tremble before him all the earth. Tremble is the first thing on that list. We tremble. 
You might see rightly when you get face down that you would tremble, like shake, like it's a recognition. Oh, please, please have mercy on me. Please, please. And that's fair enough to tremble like that. It's a command, by the way, an imperative command. He doesn't say if you feel like it. He says tremble. You ought to tremble. If you stand around long enough thinking about the greatness of God and the smallness of you, you ought to begin to tremble in his presence. This is a normal response. But the word also means to, to shake or to quake or to move, to twirl. It, means, it literally means to twirl. Listen, it means to dance. It means it gets exciting to be before the Lord, that, that things are changed, that the earth itself is moved. As a matter of fact, it says all the earth, it's all the land. It means the, the, the land quakes in the presence of God. It means that he changes things. You wonder why David was dancing like a fool in front of the Ark of the Covenant? Why he was, there's actually a video of a guy, I think I told you about this, who is dancing the dance of David, and it's quite a dance. It's a bunch of jumping and spinning and twisting, and it's very, very fervent. And you go, dude, settle down. No, that's probably about right. <laughs> we probably need to understand a little more our need to tremble before the Lord to be pleasing to him, to twist or to twirl or to dance, to recognize in fear and pain and sorrow with all of creation your great need for God. This is what I would say. Our worship is serious business. It's serious. It's not a small thing. The second thing then, so it says, it says tremble before him all the earth. The second thing, verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. And so the second thing I would say is we're called to proclaim. So on that little list down here, and we proclaim in his holiness. We proclaim among the nations. That's what the word says in verse 10. So what is it? Our worship is evangelism. In fact, it is evangelism. The way that we behave before the Lord is evangelism. The song that is in our hearts as we do our jobs every day is evangelism. In the manner in which it shapes us, I hope that makes sense to you, that it's winsome, proclaim among the nations to say it. To say it to someone else, God is good. I said to you last week the same idea, but it's, it's knitted in there that we are called to encourage other people in times of success and times of struggle. God is good. It's our witness to the nations. By the way, the word nations is the people groups. The people groups say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So this is what we're called to do, is to proclaim him. Third, it comes right there. What do we proclaim? Look at what the word says. Three things, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established, and the world cannot be moved. Those are three things that he says you ought to proclaim in your life. You ought to proclaim, Christian, in your life. And the first is this, that God is in charge, that he is king, that everyone submits to him, that everyone is indebted to him, that everyone will lose to him. He is the king, the victor. Proclaim to the nations what? The Lord, Yahweh, reigns. It is a recognition of his kingship. God is God and we are not. That's the first thing we confess to the world. We tell them. The second is that the world is inhabited, uh, or the inhabited world is firmly established. That's not the same word that comes earlier and says the earth trembled before him. The world here is the place where people live. It says these things are fully established. And in the third, these things cannot be moved. The inhabited places can't be moved. What does that mean? So the first thing is that we, would, um, that we would tremble before him and that we would proclaim. And the third thing is that we would trust in God ourselves. I was kind of torn about what to put here, but trust in God. Why? I, I wonder, how many times has it felt like your world is falling apart? 
I mean, how many times it felt like everything you knew to be true starts to shift under your feet, you know? Like, whoa, you ever seen those videos of earthquakes or something, you know, things just start to shift around and be like, whoa, what's happening? They freaks you out, man. When the world moves, you get freaked out. As people, we do. I get scared. I don't want to be the world moving. The word says we trust in God because he is the king and because it is firmly established and it cannot be moved. It cannot be moved. So much of our lives is sent or is spent in this kind of frenetic fear over what might come. We just get all shook up about it. We begin to freak out. We don't know which way is what anymore. And the word here says we ought to trust God because he is king and it will not be moved and it's firmly established. It has godly intent. We can proclaim that. When our world is falling apart or when it's going great, we trust in God. Trust in God. And then the last point, God will judge the peoples with equity. We wait. The word says God will judge, not God has judged, not past tense, but future tense. God will judge. The world will not be moved in the present, and God will judge the people with equity. This is the idea that um, all the things that are wrong will be made right. You know, um, JC said this morning, there's coming a day when there'll be peace. That's right. There's coming a day when there'll be peace. But it will be the Lord bringing peace through his right judgment. He will judge. It means he will defend. It means he will govern the peoples of the world. And he will do so in uprightness and equity and evenness. That there'll be nothing unfair in God's judgment. See, biggest problem we, one of the biggest problems we have with God is we say, well, how can I know he's going to do this right? How can I know God's going to judge us rightly? How can I, can I trust God? And, and another way you can say this waiting is we can believe. We can believe what God said is true. <clears throat> the amazing thing about reading a, a book like Psalm 96, a chapter like that, is that David believed and had not yet seen you know, there's something that we say, oh, yeah, it's easy for David, right? Because he's talking to God and God's talking to him, so why not, right? I mean, easy for David, right? No, not at all. Because David's world was upside down a whole bunch of times, and everything was shaking, including his own sin. And yet, he looked for the day when God would judge in righteousness, in injustice, in evenness, all the peoples of the earth. And he commanded this to be sung, to be said in God's presence. That we, we wait on you, God, to make things right. See, the truth is this, that you and I have something that David didn't have. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. We know how the story comes about. We know the truth of the story. The question is, will we believe it? So do you believe it? Do you believe that he's your righteousness? Do you, do you live your life in such a way to worship him through Jesus Christ? That's what I would encourage you to do because everything else is just filthy rags. Pray with me if you would. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for this day and we thank you for the reality of who you are in our lives. We thank you for your son and our savior, Jesus Christ, that makes re relationship with you possible, knowledge of you possible, that, that because he died on the cross and, and ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to minister to us and to clothe us in your righteousness, to clothe us in himself, Father. And we pray today as we gather together, and if, if nothing else, Lord, for ourselves, that we pray to you that we would recognize our own position in your son, Jesus Christ, that we would make that our song, make that our day, make that our prayer, that we would recognize it as in Jesus and in his sacrifice we are made right with you. And, and Father, I pray today for those parts of our lives that we keep 
you know, we know who we are, God, and we have this tendency to think, eh, we're not that bad. But Father, you know how much we've sinned against you. And you know the tendency of our heart to, to, to walk away and even forget your great love for us. And so today, Father, as your people, we remember Jesus Christ. Father, if there is someone here today that doesn't know you in that way, that thinks that they have to pay for their sin, that they're going to try to work it out to the best of their ability, I pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit break through in such a way to make them free, to heal them, to be God to them in a way that their heart would be forever changed because they know you. <laughs> Father, we don't want to know of you, but we want to know you. Would you save your people today? We love you so much. We thank you for the great warrior that we have in you. We thank you for the fact that we can sing in praise and you go before us into the battle and that every victory worth winning is won in you. May you be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.